Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning. If you didn't bring one, there's a pew Bible in front of you, or you could pull up the Scripture out of Matthew chapter 22 on your mobile device. And we're finishing up a four-week look at some of the fragile freedoms that Baptists have always affirmed and celebrated. We first looked at Bible freedom, then soul freedom. Last Sunday, we looked at church freedom. And today, as we approach the birthday of our country on Wednesday, we're going to look at religious freedom. In Matthew chapter 22, we have a situation where a couple of the religious slash political parties of the day were trying to trap Jesus. First of all, we've got the Herodians and the Pharisees teaming up. And they're going to ask Jesus a question to trap him. And any way Jesus moves, he's going to be in trouble. Because first of all, the Herodians were that political, religious party that really gave a nod to Rome, to the Herods who ruled in that day. They wanted to kind of cozy up to the government and make sure they stayed in good favor. And then you had the Pharisees, who didn't like the fact that Rome was in charge. They wanted God to rule their country. They wanted it to be a theocracy. And they come and they're going to ask Jesus a question about paying a tax. Because you see, every male ages 14 and above and every female ages 12 and above had to pay a head tax or a poll tax. And the Herodians were in favor of paying the tax because they wanted to stay in line with Rome. The Pharisees didn't like it, especially because... Caesar's face was on the inscription of the coin. And that just reminded the Pharisees of their subordination to Rome, and they considered it idolatry. You only put one, the true king's face on the coin, and that would have been their God. But the Herodians and the Pharisees are teaming up because what they had in common is that neither of them liked Jesus or his message. So let's read the text. Matthew 22, beginning with verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, meaning Jesus, in his words. They sent their teachers to him along with the Herodians. Remember, they're the ones who like to be uh, cozy with Rome. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with truth. You aren't swayed by men, but you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now Jesus is being backed into a corner, because if he says that it's right to pay taxes, then the Jewish people are not going to like his response, because they don't like the fact that they're in bondage and in slavery to Rome. But if he says that it's not right to pay taxes to Caesar, then he's in trouble with the Roman government. So either way he goes, he's in trouble. But Jesus, verse 19, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, 
give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, give to the state what is, belongs to the state, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord, and together let us say, thanks be to God. Okay, I want you to put your imagination caps on with me for a moment. Put those imagination hats on. You ready? I want you to imagine with me just for a moment that this morning I am not welcoming you to Oakmont Baptist Church. You with me? I am welcoming you to the Oakmont National Church. All right? For the last 242 years of our republic's history, we've not had Baptists, we've not had Methodists, we've not had Presbyterians and Lutherans. We've not had Pentecostal holiness or Assemblies of God or non-denominational churches. For the last 242 years of our republic's history, we have had only one state-sponsored church. It's run by the government. It offers a place of worship in every location in our community, in our nation. And because it's state-sponsored, it means that we have no control over who our clergy are. We don't have any control on what our worship looks like. We don't have any control on what the programs and ministries are offered. Now, there's some good news to having a state-sponsored church. You want to hear the good news first? The good news is you no longer have to bring your tithes and your offerings to worship on Sunday. Isn't that great news? The ushers are out of a job. Well, they still have to seat people and welcome people, but they no longer are going to pass the plate. You're no longer going to have to hear an, another sermon or another teaching on stewardship or being generous givers on tithing or on offerings. That's the good news. The bad news, though, is that the expenses of the church are going to be handled by your taxes. You see, every citizen in this country is going to pay a tax, whether they show up to church or not, to take care of the expenses of the state-sponsored church. When you arrive on Sunday, you won't have to worry about tithes and offerings, just pay your taxes. And also, when you arrive on Sunday, you may see a Bible or a cross on occasion, but what you'll see more often is the seal of the United States of America, and you'll see the American flag because this is a state-sponsored church. And in case you're wondering who the spiritual head is of the state-sponsored church, well, today the spiritual head of the state-sponsored church is President Donald Trump. And two years ago, the head of the spiritual, spiritual head of the church was President Barack Obama. And eight years before that, it was President George W. Bush. And every president, all the way back to the very first one, President George Washington. You want to be a part of a church like that? Now, you know, we Baptists turned this year 409 years old. You don't look 409 years to me, but you are 409 years old since the first 
Baptist Church was formed on English soil in 1609. And one of the early contributions that Baptists brought to this country, beginning with Roger Williams in Rhode Island. You ever heard of Roger Williams? Beginning with Isaac Bacchus. You ever heard of good old Isaac up in the state of Massachusetts? And with Brother John Leland. John's pretty close to us. He was up in Virginia. It was Roger Williams, Isaac Bacchus, and John Leland who came to this country and advocated not just merely for religious toleration, but they advocated for the concept of religious freedom and religious liberty for all people that got worked out practically in what we call the separation of church and state. You see, Baptists in 17th century England got a really bad taste in their mouth when the church and the state tied the knot and created a very messy marriage. Here's the history lesson from our English forebearers. Anybody here ever heard of King Henry VIII? Raise your hand if you've heard of King Henry VIII. All right. Tell me what you know about King Henry VIII. What's the one thing that you know that stands out about King Henry VIII? Wives. How many wives did he have? Eight? Six? Too many. That, that's, that, that's the correct answer, Dot. He had too many wives. He technically had six wives. And here's the story of King Henry VIII in a nutshell. In the 1530s, Henry is married to the, Catherine, to the Spanish princess Catherine of Aragon. And, you know, that, I mean, that is quite a political dynasty now when you get the king of England married up with the princess of Spain. And he's married to Catherine, but she's not been able to produce any male heirs to the throne. Now, keep in mind, this is a patriarchal age, sorry ladies, where only the male heirs count. So Catherine has had some miscarriages. She's had some girls who were born, but no male heirs. And so Henry wants a divorce from Catherine. Not only because she can't produce a male heir to the throne, but also because he has his eye now on the beautiful Anne Boleyn. So he petitions Pope Clement in Rome for a divorce from Catherine. And the Pope will not grant the divorce. So Henry is really frustrated because he wants to get rid of Catherine. He wants to marry Anne. He, I mean, his heart just pounds when he sees Anne. And he, he, wants, he wants her to be his, his new wife. So Henry comes up with this novel idea. After consulting with some of the, the religious and political hierarchy of the day, he decides to let the Church of England break from the Roman Catholic Church in Rome and reform. And it reforms with Henry, now he's the king, as the only supreme head in earth of the Church of England. So now Henry is head of state and he's head of the church. And guess what he does? He does what Pope Clement wouldn't do. 
he grants himself a divorce from Catherine. And he marries the beautiful Anne Boleyn. And of course, Dot, as you've well pointed out, he had too many wives. He had six wives. And I learned a long time ago from my friend, Bill Leonard, who was with us last week and talked about Baptists and church past, present, and future. I learned from Bill how you figure out what happened to the six wives. You ready? Here's the formula. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. You know why the sixth one survived him? Because he died before she did. Or else she might have been beheaded or, or divorced. So Catherine was divorced, beheaded. Eventually, Anne Boleyn was beheaded. And when we went to England and Wales in 2004, we went to the Tower of London. And I saw the place where Anne Boleyn's head was chopped off by Henry. Not Henry himself personally, but one of his, one of his boys that he sent to do his dirty work. So you see, what has happened is that the church and the state is now officially married. Henry is now the political, religious, and spiritual leader of the band, so to speak. Now that marriage creates a really messy problem. Because you see, now there is a threat to the state. There's a threat to the throne beyond just a political or military threat. If you and I are living in 17th century England, or 16th century England at that time, and we don't conform to the state church, the Church of England, then our religious actions, or lack thereof, can constitute a threat to the state. So guess what happened to those early Baptists? who came out of the separatist movement. They were nonconformists. They didn't want to do what Henry was saying they had to do and the rest of the kings and queens to follow. Guess what those early Baptists did? They became protesters in England of the established state religion. And guess what else happened to them? They consequently were beaten publicly, they were fined financially. They suffered economic repercussions to their protesting. They were not given due process in court and not allowed to speak in their own defense. And some of them even got sent to the Tower of London and other prisons where they died because they believed that God gave them a free conscience. And they believed that the ideal was a free church in a free state. Well, then the Baptists showed up and came to America. And you may find this hard to believe, or you may have forgotten this in your history, but when those early Baptists and those other colonists came over from England to our country before the American Revolution, most of the colonies maintained officially established churches, and they engaged in varying degrees of religious persecution and intolerance. So the Baptist, that's why Roger Williams went up to Rhode Island and, and founded that state on religious freedom. So after the revolution, that's why the Baptists agitated for a wall of separation to be established as an insurance policy. So that our God-given right, 
would be honored and protected through what's now called our First Amendment to the Constitution, which reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So you got two provisions, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. They work together to ensure that the government remains neutral to religion. It doesn't advance religion, it doesn't promote it, while at the same time, it allows people to practice their religious faith in whatever way they choose, in whatever setting they choose, as they determine, and not according to the mandates of the government. Now, here's something that's really important that people don't understand about church-state separation that I find folks don't understand. Church-state separation does not say that our religious fervor is divorced from our political action. Social concerns like civil rights or abortion or poverty have always been framed from a faith perspective. The, The one current debate that I don't hear framed from a faith perspective very often, and you just need to be aware of this and need to pay attention to it as you're reading the news and watching television and going on social media, is the current immigration debate. It's not being framed from a faith perspective by either political party. And just so you'll know what the biblical faith perspective on immigration is and how you work that out practically, I understand is another question. But I heard a Jewish rabbi say years ago that the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, tell us to remember one thing constantly. And I thought the answer to that question was, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Jewish rabbi said, no. The one thing we're told to remember is to remember the alien in your land, to remember the stranger, to remember the immigrant. Why did God tell the Hebrew people to remember the immigrant, the alien, the stranger in your land? It was because they were aliens. They were strangers in the land of Egypt for 400 years. And they not only were aliens and strangers and immigrants, but they were slaves there. And when God freed them, he said to them, of all people, you ought to know how to treat a stranger. You ought to know not to treat a stranger, an alien, an immigrant, like you were treated in Egypt. And then we remember that Jesus was a stranger in Egypt. Remember Mary and Joseph? Right after he was born, they took him to Egypt because... Herod was killing all the babies two years of age and under, and the angel appeared to Joseph and said, take the mother and the child and go to Egypt. And for several years, Jesus was an alien. He was a stranger. He was an immigrant in another land. Now, I don't know how you work out the practical implications of all of this, but what I can tell you is that this is one of the areas where our faith is not entering the public debate We're not hearing either side talk about the biblical perspective that you remember the immigrant. But Baptists have always said church-state separation doesn't mean you don't argue your case in the public square. People of faith run for office. Obviously, we vote. 
hard to believe it hadn't been too many years ago, though, when we didn't let women vote. We finally figured out they were equal citizens and could think for themselves and go to the voting booth and make that decision. You can hold public meetings, religious meetings in public places, as long as other faiths have the same right. You need to know that students can pray in school. It just can't be state-sponsored prayer. The principal can't write the prayer that they've got to pray or the teacher. And you need to know that teachers can teach about God and about faith and religion as long as they're doing it equally and not showing uh, favor to one over the other. Religious groups can meet on campus, high schools, middle schools, college campuses. The Baptist Joint Committee, which advocates, Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, which advocates religious freedom in our nation's capital, well over 70 years ago, and I want to put this on the screen this morning, well over 70 years, outlined four conceptions of the relationship between church and state. One is church above state. That would be a theocracy. Religion controls the government. Iran's Islamic Republic is a good example of that. State above church. You've got a secular government that's hostile to religion, like China, North Korea, as two examples. Then you've got church alongside of state, where one particular religion is privileged while others are tolerated. So obviously, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, is privileged in, in the country of England. And finally, our country is so unique because we have church separate from state. Religious freedom for all is written into the fundamental law of our country. So those are four conceptions of religious freedom and the relationship between church and state. Now, I've laid some groundwork. Let's go back to the scripture for just a moment. Jesus and other New Testament writers understood very well, they were really clear about the various obligations both to the state and to their faith, to the church. In our text this morning, Jesus said to return to Caesar, to the state, what belongs to the state, and to return to God what belongs to God. But Jesus, if he had to pick one over the other, always picked the kingdom of God over the state. Paul writes in Romans 13, when you go home today, read some in Romans 13. Paul writes to submit to and to respect the governing authorities as God's servants. And there's another thing that Paul writes that you don't like too much, but he did write it. He also writes in Romans 13, you ought to pay your taxes and do it with a smile on your face. And we don't, we don't preach that too much, do we? But that's what he wrote. That we pay our taxes as citizens and see those taxes as an investment in our community, our nation, and our world. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2 that we are to pray for, intercede, and offer thanksgiving for our leaders. When was the last time that you prayed for your president and members of Congress? When was the last time you prayed for your governor and your state legislature that you helped to elect? When was the last time that you prayed for your mayor and your city council and your county commissioners? 
And when was the last time that you prayed for members of the judiciary nationally, statewide, and locally? You're trying to remember the last time, aren't you? Because we don't do that much. But that's one of the instructions from Scripture is that we pray for and we show respect and we show the honor to those who have been elected. But you see, ultimately, the Bible understands that you and I have a dual citizenship. We have a dual citizenship that calls us, first of all, to love and to have loyalty to our country but it also calls us to understand that no loyalty to country or to family or even to our church should supersede our loyalty to our God expressed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 18, 36, that my kingdom, he was talking to Pilate, as Pilate was interrogating him, as the state was interrogating him. He told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And Paul writes in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven. So you see, folks, I, I think a lot of Christians have forgotten. Maybe they never knew that the religious freedom that you and I enjoy in our country today, even the freedom to say no to God or no to faith, comes in large measure because our Baptist forebears got the shaft in 17th century England and 18th century America. This week on Wednesday, I think we should celebrate and express love and loyalty to our country. We should be grateful for the political and the military leaders, past and present, who have ensured the freedom of this nation that we so richly enjoy today. My father, during World War II, spent four years in the military, two and a half years fighting outside of this country, and I'm grateful for the sacrifice that he made and that men and women, as I said, past and present, have made to ensure our freedom. But you know what? At the end of the day, we Americans need to be reminded that God does not have a favored nation. And we Americans need to be reminded that God does not have a favored race or ethnicity of people. The last time I checked, he was the God and the Father of all of us. And he doesn't show favoritism. The fact is, our ultimate freedom comes through Jesus. Not through the military, not through some political document like a constitution. It comes through Jesus who died for us. And if we're ever forced to make a choice, and I pray to the good Lord that we won't be, but if we're ever forced to make a choice, our heavenly citizenship should always far outweigh our U.S. citizenship. Because you see, Baptists learn the hard way about the messy marriage that takes place the messy knot that gets created when the church and the state get entangled together.